I told you that there was a murder here this week in our church. Would you believe me? There was a murder in our church. Well, there was a murder mystery on Friday night, and some of you were involved in that. It was pretty the coolest Valentine banquet I've ever been to. There was a lot of drama involved, and everybody who died came back to life at the end and had dessert, so that was good, and that was delightful, and we so appreciate everybody putting so much effort into that. But they, would I, would, I, would you be surprised if you read in the paper that there actually was a murder at Evangel Baptist Church? Would you be shocked if I told you that by Jesus' definition, there are regular murders at Evangel Baptist Church? Murders of brothers and sisters. And this is what the Scriptures teach. According to what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, we're guilty of murder when we have an attitude of contempt for another person that He created. Well, that's something to think about this morning. We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, the, the, the sermon that, that, that Jesus is famous for. And there's an interesting section that we've gotten to. Jesus' sermons had order to them. You know, he had the, the, the Beatitudes, the eight Beatitudes, the two similitudes. And now he has six different contrasts that he goes into. And this is the first of the six contrasts. And he begins them all in the same way. He says, you've heard that it's by the, uh, said by the ancients, or, or some translation will say to the ancients. In other words, they used to say this, but I say to you this. And six times he does that. He does it in the case of murder, anger, contempt for people. He does it in the case, uses in verses 30, uh, 27 through 30, uh, in the case of adultery and impure thoughts. In, in verses 31 and 32, this is Matthew 5, right? You're with me, aren't you? Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, in the, in the area of marriage and divorce. He corrects uh, their wrongs there. In oaths, uh, forbidden, verses 33 through 37, he says it again. He says it a fifth time in the the section on the second mile in verses 38 through 42. And then closes chapter 5 with a section on loving your enemies, but he opens that with the same phrase. So six times he uses a contrast. And we're going to look at these different six contrasts over the weeks to come. But the one today, now this is the kind of message that You don't want to look around and wait for other people to go forward on. You know what I mean? Like if we were, we're not going to do this today, but if we were to open this service at the end, we're going to say, all right, if you were convicted of sin today, come forward, kneel at the altar, and just take care of it before you leave. And just pray here. We call this like the altar sometimes, right? Kneel on the steps here and just pray and take care of it before you leave. Then if you and I were right with God, we would pack the altar on this one. We just pack it. Please, this morning, I just like, want to say this from my heart, tenderly to you. Please don't think of all those bad, wicked sinners out there today. When we get out of church, they're still going to be there, okay? Going to do them their bad, wicked sin. Please don't look down the aisle, as tempting, down the pew, as tempting as it is, and you know you've got somebody wicked on your pew there. Don't look down there and try to think, and don't, don't think to yourself, you know, bless their heart, I hope they get right with God today, and I hope the pastor says something because they're so far from God. Would you please not do that today? Wait till next week. You know, we can do that another time. We want to care for one another. Can I ask you just gently to say, apply this truth to your heart and your own soul and say, do I see myself in this passage anywhere? And if you're honest, you're going to find yourself in this passage. Heart in the heart of this passage. None of us can avoid. Jesus' messages don't miss anybody. They're very searching. And that's what we'll see. In Matthew chapter 5 and verses 21 through 26, 
Let's read together. And can I ask you, while we're reading God's Word together today, just stand together. And I'll read to you Matthew 5, 21 through 26. Listen with your heart of hearts as we just read the Word of God this morning. You have heard that it was said by those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell, fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way first, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you've paid the last penny. Father in heaven, help us now as we, together as a church, sit quietly before your word. We're already conscious as we look at the word of God, of our own guilt, of our own failure in our words and spirit toward other people. We just need to sit before your word and let the weight of conviction press on our souls this morning. And so help us to do that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Be seated. As I see it, there are like four movements in the passage that we're looking at today. And I've given each of the movements kind of a name to help you. And so as you track along with me uh, in this, I want to show you what the movement's names are. First of all, in Matthew 5, 21 through 26, in the 21st verse, the first movement of this, I'm just going to name this, Jesus is our final authority. And you're going to say, Jesus steps forward and he teaches like nobody else teaches. The, the other, the rabbis, would, would, they would quote as their authority other rabbis, but Jesus didn't quote any other rabbi as his authority because he's the living word. And this was extremely unusual, and it's mentioned at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that that was a shock to them. He starts out just by saying, you've heard that the ancients have been told, or you've heard the ancients said, you shall not commit murder. Now, much like uh, priests in Roman Catholic history, rabbis had become the sole source of authority because the people didn't commonly have a Bible in their own language. And so the rabbis, instead of doing like they should have done, and like it says in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8, they give the reading of the law, and then they give the sense of it, just they don't have a word of their own, they're just explaining the Bible. Instead of doing that, they would uh, focus on the Talmud, and then they had a, a, an elaborate system of codes that were very elaborate, and they were very intricate, and they tried to bind people into certain behaviors with these codes. And that was the stock and trade of their teaching. Jesus was calling them out immediately on that, and of Jesus, they said, he, 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 uh, he doesn't quote any rabbi. He speaks as one having authority. He doesn't quote any rabbi. Well, Jesus here, in, in this verse, verse 21, is boldly beginning. and does it, again, six times here, but he's boldly claiming his own authority. He is God in the flesh. He is the Word of God incarnate. So he speaks. He's speaking the Word of God. He opens his mouth every time. It's the Word of God that he speaks. They didn't quite get that. There's a second movement in verse 22, and I've named it this. Jesus goes right to the heart of things. He does this. Now, let's read verse uh, 22, and you're going to notice this. Verse 21 and 22 together. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, 
Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Now, I distinctly remember the first time I ever heard this Bible verse. Do you? I can tell I could take you back in my memory. I could describe it with a lot of detail and color. 1965. I'm just a wee lad in 1965. My dad is in Vietnam. My mom is having family devotions. We live in a bungalow in Grand Rapids, uh, Michigan, on Francis Street. Every once in a while I go to Grand Rapids and I bore my family by driving by the street where I learned to throw the baseball. And uh, in this little bungalow where we live now, last time I was by, there was a guy sitting up front drinking beer, and I kind of stopped, and, and, um, and I kind of looked, and <laughs> I kind of waved at the guy, and he's like, come on in. I'm like, yeah, it's all right. You know, I just looked and grew up here, and, you know, and you ever did that? I remember my mom, though, was having family devotions, and she read this, and it, and it landed on my soul like I got hit in the head with a rock. It was one of those concrete no pun intended. One of those concrete things. When it got to the end, and Jesus is saying, whoever says, you fool, will be in danger of hell fire, I immediately wanted my mother to do some hermeneutics for me and soften that. My mother, moms take note of this. My mother very wisely refused to soften the words of Jesus there. I remember her just looking at me with steely eyes. I think she knew I needed additional instruction. And she said, no, Kenny, that's what the Bible says. If you say, you fool, you're in danger of hellfire. I thought, wow, that would mean most people I know are in danger of hellfire. If you get the Raka thing, right, that's a transliterated thing that kind of means blockhead, you empty head. So you've kind of got a, a thing that says if you're angry in your spirit, you're in danger of the judgment and capital, uh, it's a, cap, a, capital uh, a local court that has capital powers to, to exercise capital punishment. If you say, if you're angry in your spirit towards somebody, even that you didn't kill them, and then if you say rocker, you just call somebody you, you blockhead, you empty head, um, or foolish person, or naive, or you retarded person, or something like that. Jesus doesn't want us to talk that way. He says, if you do talk that way, you're in danger of the council. You answer to God for that. This is just kind of shocking. Is this shock anybody else? Have you ever said somebody, ever use the term retarded like you didn't really, did you ever call somebody a moron? So, do I need to drill down on this? You, you call, what's your favorite name, jerk? What, what do you jerks call people? I mean, I'm sorry, but yeah, see, that's see what I'm saying. We have a, what's, your, what's yours? I think this is the term. We're, we're talking about kind of a light, it's like denigrating term. Jesus is, this is just shocking, isn't it? Are you kidding? And, and then if you say, you fool, you're in danger of hellfire. And Jesus here now uses a place just outside of town as an illustration of eternal conscious torment of people who have been guilty of any of these sins, calling people blockhead, raka, you fool. He uses this place, and everybody would have known where it was, where the dead bodies from sacrifices were burned. It was a foul place of stench. It was a place outside the camp. Incidentally, perhaps not incidentally, it was the place where Jesus went to die outside the camp, an off-scouring, in a place of continual burning and stench, a terrible place. Jesus uses this to capture their understanding that anyone that's guilty of any of these sins of the tongue or spirit is in danger of going into eternal conscious torment where there's fire and, and torment that, that goes on and on. And this is what Jesus taught. 
It wasn't somebody else that interpreted Jesus. Jesus is the one who teaches this most often. So if you're like I am, and when I was a kid and I just thought, that, that means I'm in really serious trouble. And the, the, the effect of Jesus' message on me as a little boy is precisely the effect that he wants this to have on the people who listen. Nobody gets off scot-free. Nobody gets there. Well, I've never murdered anybody. Oh, really? Have you ever been angry at anybody? How do you define angry? You know, right? Uh, righteously indignant. Are you sure about that? Are you sure? You ever call somebody, you blockhead, or you idiot, or I don't need to go to the, through my list again, do I? You ever say, you fool, or did you ever like denigrate, show contempt for somebody, or have an attitude of personal contempt? Well, this is interesting. Jesus is saying, I'm not looking only, Jesus does look at the outward appearance. And there are things outwardly we ought to do. But Jesus doesn't look only at the outward appearance. Jesus looks at the heart attitudes. And this is the thing the Pharisees weren't getting and the people that were influenced by the Pharisees. And a lot of us don't get. Notice this, how quickly Jesus goes to the heart of things. He goes quickly from the ultimate act of murder to the motive behind the murder. And the words, angry words, are sinful words. Contemptuous words are sinful words. Because our words reveal our hearts, murder, anger, hatred, contempt, and an unloving spirit. They all have the same root, Jesus is saying. They are all sin, and they are all sins for which we will answer to God. Now, this is what Jesus says. A lot of us kind of don't believe that way. We have our own kind of a thing. We go, I know, there's something that everybody will like, how far down do I have to drill to get somebody guilty enough that they deserve to go to hell? You know, you've got to talk about Hitler or something, right? You've got to get to a Jeffrey Dahmer, a Hitler, or something really bad, really awful, somebody else, like infinitely worse than you, to get to somebody that people would kind of agree popularly. Yeah, okay. You ever talk to somebody, they say, I don't believe in hell. And then you say to them, well, then where, where, where's Osama bin Laden going to go when we finally kill him? They go, okay, I believe in hell. Just not for me or anybody I know or love. Right? Am I right? <laughs> Do you guys, you guys witness out there and that's what happened? They, they only believe in hell when you get to that. Jesus is saying, Jesus takes the whole thing, turns it completely upside down, and he goes, no. People, and he's going to see a little bit later on, you know, you're going to see this, and you, you have, obviously, if you study Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, that if a person has you know, stayed away from the big two or three, you know, horrible sins, like, okay, I never killed anybody, I didn't commit adultery, Jesus is going to, going to go after those things. If you, had the, if you had the murderous thought in your heart, you sinned enough to go to hell. If you had the adulterous thought in your heart, you've sinned enough to go to hell. If you've called somebody a name, if you've called one of my precious beings that I created a name, you have injured them enough that you deserve to go to hell. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what Jesus is saying. He's just teaching the law, really. He's clarifying that. And this is something that we ought to the weight of that, instead of looking around at the culture and saying, well, this is basically kind of okay culturally, and this is not okay culturally, but our culture is so godless, that, and you know, so God-ignoring, that we, we want them to wash over our hearts over and over again the law of God, that way our hearts are informed by the law of God, and we hate the things that God hates, and we're afraid of the things that God says we ought to be afraid about. And this is the, the, the use of the law. The altar should fill on this one. It shouldn't it? Think about that. Irritation, personal contempt, Personal disregard, verbal denigration, verbal abuse, gossip, slander, the Baptist sins. Am I right? We got that all covered under prayer request or I need to help somebody so I can gossip, I can slander, I can use unkind speech because I don't drink. I, I don't party. I don't commit adultery. I'm not to those dirty things. 
I mean, hey, can a Baptist guy have a little gossip on the side if he doesn't drink, smoke, play poker, go to bad movies? Is that all right? What was the guy, uh, his name will come to me in a minute, a current author has written a book, a helpful book, Jerry Bridges, called Respectable Sins. And I think that when I read a text like this and I study what Jesus said, it occurs to me Jesus wants the Baptist folk who I think he has a special love for, to go after their respectable sins. And when we go after our respectable sins, then maybe we'll have a level of holiness that will impact the world whose sins have taken them so far from God that their sins are so obvious, sins of the flesh, when our sins are very real, but they're sins of the Spirit. If you can talk about somebody behind their back without a pang, you understand it's causing pain in the heart of God. And God says, the clock is ticking on your judgment. You will have judgment because you've done this. This is what the text is going to say. You'll see it. But the, the altar could, should be full. Let me, let me give you a little example of what Jesus has done. He, we, in, the, in this, he talks about the sin of the overt action. Then he talks about two sins of the tongue, the rake of thou fool. But and overall, he's talking about sins of the attitude of the heart. Think about it like this. In the Bible, there are a number of places where there are sin lists, and the sin lists include all the bad things you would expect to see on sin lists, like you know, adultery and fornication, which are sexual sins, which tend to get a lot of press. You know, for that sells newspapers, whatever. Um, drunkenness would be among them. You know, drug, uh, d- demon-possessed people, people that are in the occult. These would be on the list. But you know what's interesting? You ever notice? You find me a list, bring it to me that doesn't include kind of embedded in it the Baptist sins. Can I call them the Baptist sins and you're not going to be all... I'm more Baptist than you are, just so you know. But I'm just, it's us I'm talking to. I'm trying to you know, get your attention. So what I'm saying is, try to find me a sin list in the Bible that doesn't include the sins of the Spirit right alongside, the sins of attitude, right alongside those overt sins of the flesh. They go together. That's what Jesus is saying. They go together. And so a person could avoid kind of these outward, you know, scandalous sins... And and his main motive for avoiding outward scandal is because he's so proud he would never want to be seen as a person involved in outward scandal. So he's pressed his sins all underground. What Jesus is saying is, I look at you and immediately see directly to your heart. Jesus goes right to the heart. And this is what the Bible says in Luke 16 and verse 15. He said, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That ought to kind of silence all of us. You know, we talk about affections for God, and we ought to talk about them. Brian Hedges, a pastor friend of mine, has written a beautiful book, Christ Formed in You. And in it, he has this wonderful list. And I I got to do a review of his book before it was published. Got a free copy. He bumped into two of my boys over in a coffee shop, gave two of them a free copy. There you are. And um, Precious Guy. In the book, he has this list of uh, biblical examples of religious affections, like Jonathan Edwards called them, or a heart for God. God is looking at our heart, and he wants affections in our heart that are pleasing to God. One of the things I noticed in Brian's list that he'd taken directly out of Scripture is there were all the positive things that you would expect. You know, joyful, joy is a, is a Christ-like affection. Love is a Christ-like affection. But there are negative affections too. If you really have affections for God, you have all of them together and they include hatred for sin, a sense of justice of right and wrong. You know, a grief over sin is a religious affection. It's a Christ-like affection. 
And this is the thing that God is looking for in our heart. And these are the things that only God can put into our hearts. And the reason that Jesus is teaching about it is not really so much that everybody will scurry around and spin all the plates of righteousness and keep all the plates spinning. You know, get to enough Sunday school classes that I keep all the plates spinning in my life and I don't do any of these bad things. It's so that you'll come to the end of yourselves and all your plates had crashed to the ground and you would say, God, what am I going to do? And now he says, okay, now I'm ready to talk to you about Calvary. Before that happens, we've got to talk about the law. We've got to go to Sinai before we go to Calvary, though. And that's good for Christians and unchristian people alike. Understand, God will hold us accountable for what is in our hearts. Notice the various uh, punishments that are given here. Murder, you've got uh, uh, judgment. Anger, you've got judgment like a local court. Raka, the danger of the council like the Sanhedrin or the Supreme Court. And thou fool, again, as we mentioned, the danger of hell fire. Consider why this is. Why is unjust anger? Why does this stir up judgment of God? Why is this such a big deal? You heard the, about the little boy that he got in trouble with his mom and dad because he wouldn't finish his plums and he didn't like plums and they forced him to eat his plums and they said, if you don't eat your plums, you're going to your room. And he said, well, send me my room. I'd rather spend the rest of my life in my room than eat plums. And they banished him to his room and a big thunderstorm came and it was just crashing and rattling the windows and they were... They were a little bit of afraid that, you know, he would think maybe the judgment of God was coming on him. And so they went up to his room and they peeked in and he's sitting in the window and he's looking out and he goes, wow, such a fuss about a few plums. <laughs> this is why we look at a pastor like this and go, I understand if you're upset about murder, but what's the fuss about a little bit of thou fool? He's like, he's like it's well, your, your soul is in jeopardy over it, so you might want to give it some thought. <laughs> God will hold us accountable. Now consider this. Here's, here's why. Jesus is saying it's, these things are like murder. Talking bad about somebody is like murder. Having an attitude of contempt for somebody is like murder. That's what he's saying. I'm not saying it. It just kind of goes against our, our grain, but it's what Jesus taught. So when I can just gossip lightly about somebody behind their back, something dies If I can speak about somebody the way they look or what they're like, something dies, it happens. I know from personal experience, something dies in people. If you can say something bad about a girl, something dies. It's a crime scene. Many of us, we've said things about people, other people in the room, and we ought to go with hat in hand and sincerely seek their forgiveness so that the guilt so that we're absolved of the guilt of it and pray with them. These are the kinds of sins that are more likely to destroy a church than the overt sins of the flesh that are kind of obviously wrong. When we can slander somebody, it's a crime scene. If we can speak in unrighteous anger against our wife or our husband, our children, it's a crime scene. Just put the, put the yellow tape around. Chalk the body on the floor. Something died right there. Think about that. This is a little picture from our murder mystery. This is not a real person, if you're wondering. But I want you to get this picture in your brain. If you can speak, ladies, the Bible says you ought to have the law of kindness on your tongue. If you speak to your husband in an unkind way, regardless of what he's done or not done to you, it's a crime scene in God's eyes. You're guilty. You're not going to be able to go to Jesus and go, well, you don't know what he did to me. Jesus will say, I'll take care of him. I'm talking about you right now. 
if many of us in our zeal to get our kids to do the kind of things we know they ought to do, sin against them and we scold them, God forbid that we should go even beyond that and harm our children physically, though I do believe it's an appropriate way to discipline a child. It's not in anger. It's not by coercion or force or scolding. And some of our children, we, we wonder why they're having trouble absorbing the things of God. But the Bible says that the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And that is the default mode of a lot of Christian parents to get their kids to do what they know they ought to do. Just forms of irritation or anger or contempt. And I say to those parents, can I plead with you to have a revival in your home? And go to the words of Jesus and say, Jesus, am I killing things? Am I killing my wife's spirit? Am I crushing my husband's heart? Am I breaking my kids' hearts? Have I alienated my neighbor from Christ? Are the people that I work with alienated from God because I am guilty of murder in my spirit. Think long and hard about that. This is a helpful teaching of Jesus. For this reason, we must guard our hearts continually against the first sign of seeds of unrighteous anger. There's another movement in this, and we'll move quickly through these last two. If you don't love people, then you can't say you love God. I think that's what these next verses are saying. This is a pretty shocking and interesting thing. Jesus in his teaching was interesting. Would you agree? He had, uh, by the way, just like I like a little aside because I like preaching and I like looking at Jesus the master preacher. You notice what he's doing here? He uses a bunch of different powerful things. One of the things he does, he has symmetry. The human mind craves order and his message has symmetry to it. One of the things he does is he uses shock. You know, you've heard this, but that's not true. What? You know, right? Uh, some of the things he does is he appeals to the conscience. He says, biting straight in, like, this is what preachers should do. You should come to church and you shouldn't get your back padded, you know. You should, like, go home every once in a while going, I got some work to do on this, right? There should be that kind of a sense of, like, I'm a sinner today, not, you know, this guy across the, the, the aisle is a sinner. Here's what he says, though. So he brings this thing and says, so, so if you're going to worship and you're going to show God you worship and you're going to give a gift because you're going to worship, and then you remember that somebody has a justifiable cause against you, has ought against you, something against you. Here, what he says is, leave your gift at the altar and before you worship, go be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer. In other words, he says, don't come and worship me and use that as an excuse to leave offenses against people unresolved. This is great. This lands on Communion Sunday because tonight we're going to return and we're going to approach the table of our Lord Jesus Christ and we're going to have the Lord's Supper tonight. And the Bible, Jesus wants us, and he, he instructed us to always examine our hearts before we go to the Lord's Supper because we have said words that hurt other people. We have damaged other people. We have spoken in anger. We have spoken without thinking, hold that one, don't talk about that person. That has happened. That does happen all the time. There's murder at Evangel Baptist Church. There's fratricide. There's brother murder at Evangel Baptist Church. It happens right here. From the top to the bottom, we're all guilty of this. You say, I'm not guilty. Like, well, I guess I don't want to condemn you. So I would just say top to bottom, I'm guessing most of us are guilty of this. So this would be a wonderful place for us to begin to pull the trigger on revival and for each one of us to go through our own life and say, okay, God, in what way have I hurt anybody? And just go back to that person. And that is seen by God as an act of worship. In my life, I talk a lot. It's kind of what I do. And that is a very dangerous thing. Because the more you talk, the more likely it is you're going to hurt somebody. And I've had many, many occasions 
to go to people that I love, who I have hurt, and plead with them to give me another chance. Try to feel with them the pain of what I said. Wouldn't it be wonderful? We got our kids going off the winter camp, and we're also desirous of those kids knowing Jesus in a beautiful way and having revival in their souls. They need to see what that revival looks like. And we're talking right here about a place where revival can begin today, where we say, where I've spoken angry, harsh words, I'm going to openly seek forgiveness and I'm going to shed tears over that. I'm going to bend the knee over that. I'm going to go to my wife. I'm going to take her hands in mine. I'm going to say to her, I was careless in the way I talked to you. And I sinned against you. I hurt you. Would you please forgive me? Give me another, give me another chance. This should happen hundreds of times in Christian marriages. That son of yours, and he may be resisting you a bit. You know, he may be kind of like trying to grow up, and he's resisting you, and you're forcing stuff on him. He's like, and you, you're, you're, you're frustrated, so you're scolding him, or you're just, you, every time he sees you, you've got that look on your face like of disapproval, and that's really anger. And Jesus is saying, that's not going to accomplish righteousness. And maybe you just need to go to that boy, and you don't know, take him out for breakfast, and say to him, I've been, I've been all wrong here. And I've treated you in a way, an angry way. Can I just say honestly, I think a lot of good Christian people who got a lot of good convictions about a lot of things, they think their anger is justifiable and it is not righteous indignation. It's sin and it's harming them. And I don't want to harp on this, so let me just move on. Understand that it's like in Isaiah 58, the people are saying, I'm fasting. Doesn't that just seem like a wonderful thing to do? I'm fasting. And the people in Isaiah 58 are like, I'm fasting. And you know what God says to the people in Isaiah 58? He says, I don't want you to fast like that. Because you're, he said, you're, you're taking advantage of people out in the field and you're robbing from them. And you're not being honest in your business practices toward other people. And I'd rather you eat and go be honest in your business practices than you come and you fast and make a big thing out of how righteous you are. This is what I hear the voice of Jesus saying to us, and that is, I love your praise and worship songs. They're beautiful to my ear, but sometimes when you come and you say, you know, you are my all in all, but really you're ripping people off, or you're talking behind somebody's back, or you really don't love God's people, don't sing me a song. Go love your brother and your sister, and then come back and sing me a song. That is what he's saying right here. God is saying, shockingly, God is saying it is a more important act of worship for you to get right with somebody that you hurt than it is for you to come and give an offering. And when you come to God, you ought to bring an offering. Amen? Yes. Offering a praise, a gift offering, offering a thanks offering, of course. But he says even before that holy act of that offering, go make things right with other people because they're precious to me. That's what he says. So if you don't love people, you can't say that you love God. It's assumed that you'll bring an offering when you come to worship. It's further assumed that you have a clear conscience, void of offense, when you come to worship, right? But Jesus is saying that he demands that we have a clear conscience, void of offense with other people before we come to worship. You might think, well, somebody's still got something against me. I don't think this is what Jesus is saying. I think he's saying when they have a legitimate cause against you and you haven't made it right, Somebody told me, this is a practical tip, you know, what about people in your past you've, you've harmed in some way and you, you kind of can't get back to them? And then here's what I would suggest that you do. Go to the Lord immediately and tell the Lord the disposition of your heart and say, God, if you give me the opportunity, I will make that right. And you will be surprised how God is more interested in you making things right than you are in making things right. And he will give an opportunity for you to make things right. Be very wise and careful about how you do it, but get to them and get there quickly. On a good day, on a good day, you, you know, 
I have that whole procrastination thing, like maybe some of you do too. I could easily procrastinate things, but on a good day, this is one over the years I've learned. If I hurt somebody, I can't afford to let the sun go down. I got to get to them quick. Because if I don't, and their heart hardens against me, it gets very sad. Is it that way with you? And think about that. What if that person needs you? What if that person is related to you? What if you're the dad, the mom, the husband, the wife? You can't let that happen. Not in your home. Not in this church. Not in this church. So let's work on that together. And let's take that seriously. Here's what Jesus said in what the Bible says in 1 John 4 and 20. If someone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he's seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? So stop and think about that for a minute. What worship does God want from you right now? Let me show you the fourth movement before we... Guilt in this is an urgent, vital matter. And you'll see this in verses 25 and 26. Agree with your adversary quickly. Somebody's got against you, get it taken care of right away. While you're in the way. By the way, the Bible doesn't say go get somebody and go with somebody else. The Bible teaches go alone first. Uh, The Bible doesn't say send somebody else. No, the Bible says you go, and you reconcile with your adversary. You go eyeball to eyeball, face to face. You take care of it. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're in the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you to the officer, and you're thrown in prison. And surely I say to you, you'll be, be, by no means get out of there till you've paid the last penny. This is a metaphor that Jesus is using for guilt of any kind. And he's like saying, if you're guilty of a debt... Take care of it fast because judgment's hanging over your head and already the wheels of justice are in place and they're coming to get you and they're going to lock you up and they're going to throw away the key and you stand there till you pay the last penny. In other words, take this sin seriously and act very quickly on it. Take care of it quick. Move. Judgment's coming on that. You may come to this overall idea and you see it and you think, how could I ever take care of all the things that I've done wrong in all of my life and you're on the right track? You can't. You're going to need kind of a sweeping cleansing somehow. This is justification by faith. This is what Jesus did on Calvary. Hear me now. If you're not a Christian, this is where you get saved. Right here. If you are a Christian, this is where you move forward in sanctification. Is that you realize the weight of your sin, and you go before the Lord, and you you plead for mercy. See what I mean? Religion is, I go before the Lord, and I tell him how good I've been, and I see if I made the grade, and if he lets me in. But, But that's not what the Bible teaches. But... The, the grace of God is, I, I understand the back-breaking weight of my guilt, and I take it to the Lord, I flee, I run, and quickly, and I say to the Lord, I admit this, and, I, and I'm completely unable to go and fix everything I, I, I did wrong. Is there any, and he says, yes, by an accounting term, it's like, and you will, you will stay there until you pay the last penny. By an accounting term, he's going to put credit into your account that Jesus bought on Calvary. He puts righteous credit. This is the coolest thing in the world. He puts righteous credit on unrighteous men accounts. The perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ come put on our account where God sees our account and there's righteousness there that we never had because Jesus gave it to us. And he takes his perfect righteousness and he puts it on our account and he takes our awful guilt to Calvary and dies for it. How awesome is that? Did anybody ever tell you that before? Because the first time you heard that, you should rush to Christ and say, I want it, I'm in, it's a deal, how do I start? This is what it means to get saved. That's, what, that's when you're born again. You cross from death into life. Now when you've gone to a certain number of church services, or you've been baptized or confirmed, or you took communion, you cross from death into life when you believe that your sin went on Jesus and His righteousness came on you, and that's the gospel. And that's what Jesus is going to drive toward. This is what he's exposing here. And this is where Jesus wants us to go. Maybe he wants you to go there today.
Maybe he wants you to make that clear to some friends. So God looks on the heart and he demands his perfection, but he also supplies his perfection in his son, Jesus Christ. This section of the sermon ends, you need to be perfect like your father in heaven is perfect. And Jesus is such a man. He does what I've never been able to do. He just lays the law on him and then he walks. He doesn't give him the gospel here. He just lays the law on him. He goes, yep, you're going to hell. It's like, and he walks. And people are like, whoa, 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 wait, is that it? Well, there's more. This is, Jesus actually did this. Have you ever met a pastor do that? I mean, none of us do that, right? We've got we to gotta give them, a, you know, we just, you know, just like leave them. They just, but he just laid the law on them sometimes, told them a story that would just like totally upset them all and leave them like on their way to hell and say, well, have a nice lunch. And, off. and the, you know, right? And his disciples, this is true. Read your Bible. It's in there. His disciples would scurry along and say, what did you mean by that? Glad you asked. You have ears to hear. How many of you here today have ears to hear? Have a hungry heart for God. Not a self-righteous, oh, I've got this, and I'm glad I don't do that. I'm glad I'm not drinking, smoking, carrying on bad people. You know. God help us, right? May he, may he help us. I want this truth to ring in your heart as you leave today. It rings a special way for that to happen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray this truth would ring in our hearts and that we would be honest and forthright before you and each one of us, every pastor, every deacon, every, every member. And that, Lord, that would make Calvary so continuously sweet to us. And I pray that would be true. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.